podcast, a companion to On the Air magazine, a bi-monthly magazine from ARRL for beginner to intermediate ham radio licensees. I'm your host and the editor of On the Air magazine, Becky Schoenfeld, W1BXY. Every month, the On the Air podcast extends material found in On the Air magazine to help you learn about the many things the ham radio service and hobby have to offer. The On the Air podcast is sponsored by ICOM for the love of ham radio. I am here this time with frequent QST and On the Air contributor, Dino Papas, KL0S. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Dino. My pleasure. So um, this time around, we're going to be talking about the Project Build article from the September-October 2022 issue of On the Air, um, which was how to make a two-meter J-pool antenna out of lamp cord. Um, And this was a a really neat little project that we also ran in QST. Um, QST being QST, it it dug into um, some of the deeper technical issues that we wouldn't necessarily get into in On the Air. But uh, in On the Air, we refer to the QST article for folks who do have more of a technical bent and are able to to dig in more to QST. But uh, In terms of the level that we approach the material at for On the Air, I wanted to talk to you, Dino, because you were good enough to actually build the project for us and and take the step-by-step photos so folks could follow along in that issue and um, get a little more information about some of the things that um, we gloss over a little bit in the article in the interest of getting the antenna built. Maybe we want to start with what exactly is a J-pole? I know they're shaped like the letter J, but uh, why are they so popular? Um, where, where do those come from? Well, Becky, it may be useful uh, first to talk a bit about the history of the J-pole antenna, uh, more properly known as the J antenna, since, uh, as you said, it form in form, it resembles the letter J. It's a vertical, omnidirectional transmitting antenna that many hams use for transmitting and receiving in both the 2-meter and 70-centimeter bands. Unlike the uh, ground plane antenna that many of us built as our first foray into 2 meters, often constructed with coat hanger elements. Oh, yeah. We, um, we've done a few of those in On the Air. Um, in the first issue, January, February 2020, we had a... Um, a very simple two meter antenna ground plane, yeah. Yeah, and it doesn't require radials to operate like that one did, and its its radiation pattern is close to that of an ideal vertical dipole. I looked in uh, Wikipedia to get a little bit of history, and uh, according to them, it was invented by a guy named Hans Begaro way back in 1909 uh, for use as a practical solution for feeding a wire antenna trailed behind a dirigible and thus the name most associated with that configuration is the ZEP antenna after the famous Zeppelin airships of the 20th century. That antenna consisted of a long wire radiator along with a quarter wave parallel transmission line tuning stub. That's a mouthful. Which, yeah. And what it did was it matched the antenna impedance to the feed line. And we'll talk about the matching here in a moment. 
Yep. And I know uh, tuning stubs, I want to get into that too, because the, the J-Pole project in this issue has a tuning stub. I want to go back to the what you said about a long wire radiator. Um, like on a, on a Yagi, I know what the radiator is on a, a Yagi beam antenna, but when we're talking about um, a wire antenna, what are we talking about in terms of a radiator? Well, it's exactly the same thing. The radiator is what trans, uh, translates the electro, the, the, the movement of current along the wire or the aluminum piece of a Yagi antenna, and it translates that into electromagnetic energy that that basically moves off of the wire and into the air, and that's what gives us our radio frequency wave that uh, can go around town or around the world. Uh, so the only difference is the, the length of that piece of wire or the length of that piece of aluminum, but they do exactly the same thing. Oh, okay. Uh, the ham version of this antenna follows the same general design and functions identically, but obviously on a smaller scale than uh, that was used on those early Zeppelin airships. And it's oriented vertically rather than horizontally, where we use it for our VHF and UHF communications today. The, the section at the bottom of the antenna, that is from the shorted lamp cord point to the notch in the center of the cord, what we're calling that tuning stub you're interested in, Ooh. serves at the, as that quarter wave matching transformer. Uh, our newer hams may recall from their studies for their license or upgrade that matching the impedances of our radio, the feed line, most often in the form of a coaxial cable, and then the antenna itself is very important. Because when all of these elements have the same impedance, in our case 50 ohms, this provides for the maximum transfer of transmitted power to the antenna. And any condition where these impedances aren't matched simply reduces the efficiency of your system and your ability to communicate. So um, a little bit of clarification for me. So even though this stub, um, it gets called the tuning stub a few times during the course of the, the article. Um, so it also functions as a match for the antenna. Yeah, uh, hams. We have we have a bad habit, really, of of calling a tuning stub or a tuning a, an antenna tuner. Yeah, really doesn't do that. It's it's a misnomer. Uh, what these what these systems these matches do is exactly that. They will take one impedance and transform it into another, so that the system matches along the way. So the quarter wave stub that's part of this antenna actually does that uh, translation of impedance at the bottom of the antenna. So the 50 ohm cable coming from your radio, when it arrives at the antenna, is then matched by that tuning stub, for the lack of a better term, uh, to the impedance of the antenna, which is much, much higher than that 50 ohm system. Um, so it allows the maximum power transfer uh, to get out through the antenna. Okay, so calling it a tuning stub, is it really more tuning in the sense of antenna tuner tuning? Like you wouldn't use an antenna tuner with this antenna. Uh, no, that, that's correct. The, the tuning stub, as, as John talks about it in his article, is, does exactly that. It matches the impedance between the coaxial transmission line and the impedance of the antenna itself, which, as I said, is uh, quite a bit higher than our normal 50-ohm system. 
uh, you wouldn't use a tuner with uh, with this antenna because the match is what gives you the efficiency of the system. Okay, great. Well, that that's very helpful. Thanks, Dino. Now I, I, I understand a lot more about this stub. Okay, well, the tuning stubs are actually useful uh, in yep. other situations, and they can be configured as filters along a feed line to eliminate Ooh. interference and also used as a beta match on that Yagi antenna that you were talking about, for example, earlier. Um, Hams have used uh, all sorts of different materials to build our J-poles with, some of us using copper plumbing pipe or aluminum tubing. And what that does is it creates a really rigid antenna, which is great for permanent installations, either in your attic if you're limited by HOA rules or outdoors. Um, but the ham J-poles that use more flexible materials really provide a simple, versatile, portable solution where communications with a standard rubber ducky on your HT really aren't uh, aren't reliable. And that was the case in John's situation in his article where he wasn't able to communicate during a, a community support event, I believe, uh, with just the rubber ducky and he put this antenna together and then he was able to efficiently communicate. Um, these portable versions are, are usually built using some type of twin lead antenna and some of you of an older generation may remember that as TV antenna cable. It had an impedance of 300 ohms. Or window line transmission cable that uh, you see some hams using to feed their HF or VHF and UHF antennas. Um, but it can be rolled up and thrown into a go bag and erected quickly. It's not, uh, it's not made out of copper plumbing uh, pipe or uh, aluminum tubing. So it will do exactly the same thing, but you can take it with you. You simply roll it out and tie the top of the antenna to some nearby support, connects the, connect the coax cable to your radio, and voila, you're on the air. John uh, Unrath, as we've been talking about, K6JHU, described uh, his version of a 2-meter-only J-pole in his July 2022 QST article that was titled, Make a 2-meter J-pole from Lamp Cord. Okay. Um I had a question about once we get into the, the tuning and testing of this particular antenna, um, you mentioned testing the antenna's resonant point. And I was wondering, what is the resonant point? How do you, how do you find it? How do you know when you've reached it? Um, is What happens if you don't? Is this a measure of the antenna's effectiveness? Uh, how does this work? Okay. Well, first of all, it might be useful to just talk about what a resonant condition uh, is. And a, a resonant frequency in electronics occurs when a circuit or an antenna, in our case here, exhibits a maximum oscillatory response at a specific frequency, usually in a circuit consisting of an inductor and capacitor. All right. Well, that all sounds really complicated, so maybe an analogy would help. So let's take a tuning fork. Everybody remembers what a tuning fork is and just yep. tap, tap it on the tabletop. And then the fork moves back and forth or oscillates at a single known frequency. Now, if you bring another identical tuning fork near the one that is oscillating, the sound waves from the first fork causes the air between them to move in harmony and strike the second fork, causing it to begin oscillating at that same frequency. Yep. The fact that the two forks are identical is what's important, and in the worlds of electronics, we go back to our 50-ohm system, where we want all of our forks, for the lack of a better term, to be the same. 
or that their impedances match. Mm -hmm. In the case of our antenna here, think of the first tuning fork as our transmitter. If the transmission line has an identical impedance, as does hopefully our antenna, the RF energy will pass from the radio through the transmission line and then excites the antenna, which in turn oscillates just like the second tuning fork did. The key is that the system is matched, and once again, we're able to transfer the maximum amount of power to our antenna. In other words, it operates at its most efficient condition. And we want our J-pole antenna to resonate at the frequency at which we want to operate. And in this case here in the two meter band, somewhere around, I don't know, 146 megahertz or so. So as we were talking about just a moment ago, we designed the antenna so that it presents the best match at the frequency that we want to communicate on. And we do this initially by, as we said, designing the dimensions and then we fine-tune the system to get that maximum transfer of power. I'm wondering, what happens if somebody doesn't test for the resonant point and they go ahead and try to use this antenna? Um, is it a matter of the antenna not being efficient and it maybe you know, you've got a high SWR, is something likely to happen to that person's equipment? Or is it um, more a matter of um, you're not gonna you're not gonna get out with this antenna and make the contacts you were expecting to make, uh, or is it both? Yeah, it's it's actually a little of both. Uh, what we're trying to do is act, obviously get the maximum signal out of the antenna. So when we design the antenna, we want to obviously design it for a certain frequency. If you go either higher or lower than the frequency, your system becomes less efficient. And that just ends up being a poorer signal that you're radiating. So you really want the system to operate at that optimum resonant frequency. If you deviate from that point one way or the other, um, it's probably not going to make a lot of difference. But once you start to deviate from that optimal condition, far enough, uh, sooner or later, you're simply not going to get out at all because the conditions become such that uh, you're not transferring any power into the antenna at all. So if if somebody were, how would someone know what would be the signs? Um, would it be just, I'm just not getting out this antenna, this antenna must be terrible. I can't make any contacts with it. Um, would that be the sign? Are there other signs? Well, there's a little more to it because what we're going to do is once we um, build the antenna initially, we're going to do something to tune it uh, simply by uh, snipping some of the wires off, basically. And uh, when, when we build these antennas, we normally dimension it so that the initial resonant frequency will be lower than what we're shooting for. And that's going to be important. And why do we do that? Well, remember that in general, the longer the resonant element of the antenna is, the lower in frequency it will resonate at. So if we start longer than we need, then to bring our resonant point to our desired condition, we'll shorten the antenna element. It's so much easier to remove a piece of conductor than it is to add some back. Ask me how I know. <laughs> when, I, when I first built John's J-Pole antenna, I inadvertently went a little too far with my snipping and actually had to start all over again. 
oh, I don't think you told me that, you know. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> just, that's just between you and me. Oh, okay. Well, I'm sorry about that. Okay, but you, you were asking about, how, well, how are, how are we going to know whether the antenna is going to be good enough or not? So um, how do we know we've reached that resonant point? Well, back in the day, a little more history here, us old hams used uh, something called the standing wave ratio, and some of our listeners probably know about that. But we used that to measure the efficiency of our antenna system at one point, when in general, a lower SWR being better. In other words, anything a perfect match would be 1 to 1, for example. A match of 1.5 to 1 would be acceptable. 2.0 is okay. 2.0 to 1. Uh, once you get above 3 to 1, for example, um, you're really starting to deteriorate. Uh, most HF rigs that our hams uh, have today have an antenna matcher, more often called an antenna tuner, um, that will accept a match of three to one or less and allow you to communicate. You're just not going to put as much power out with a three to one SWR as you would with a one to one SWR. Yeah. So it's, it's simply a measurement of the amount of power that's radiated by the antenna that's compared to the amount of power that's reflected back from the antenna as a result of, once again, that mismatch of impedances at the antenna feed point. The, the problem with that procedure, and I remember it well, is sure, you can take the measurement, but it didn't tell you whether your antenna element was either too short or too long. As if you think about it, you could get an identical reading on each side of that desired resonant frequency because it's a curve, and the bottom of the curve hopefully will occur at that resonant frequency. So what you had to do was take a measurement at a series of frequencies to develop a picture of where the best condition would be found. Imagine going back and forth between your radio. I did it a lot from roof back to the shack and the antenna enough times to draw a curve on a piece of graph paper that represents whether you were still too long, hopefully, or too short, regrettably. But, but nowadays, modern antenna analyzers really have solved that process and made it so much easier as they do all the measuring at lots of different frequencies for you quickly and automatically and then present you with that graph that you would have drawn on a piece of graph paper right there on the antenna analyzer itself. And it gives you a picture that represents the SWR versus the frequency. And then with this picture, you immediately can see in which direction you need to adjust the antenna element to reach the best match. Hopefully you didn't cut it too short. And then to get to your point finally, when you reach a point where the lowest SWR value is found at your desired operating frequency, then you know that you've optimized your system and you're going to be able to communicate the best. So it sounds like uh, it sounds like you really need an antenna analyzer you would you would sent me an email at one point while you were working on this piece saying you know you really need to build this um with an antenna analyzer on hand it really can be uh tricky as john and i both found that you really need an analyzer to achieve that best match for the antenna because it turns out reaching this optimal point is a combination it's a dynamic system of adjusting the size of the gap between the top and bottom elements, along with adjusting the overall length of the antenna. And this combination requires you to both increase the size of the gap between the matching stub and the wire directly above it, as well as the overall length of the antenna. So you're, you're messing with two things at the same time. Yeah. And think about it, 
doing that with a single meter would be difficult because you really wouldn't know what the impact of one or the other does. I found that uh, John's initial element lengths were quite long, and, and that's a good idea, as we've talked about. And the initial resonant point was at around 113 megahertz, which uh, you might know is down in the commercial aviation band. So that's quite a ways from our two-meter band. But this is really actually to our advantage, since as we trim the notch and the overall length dimensions using the antenna analyzer's SWR curve, which it displays, uh, we can get a feel for how much our cut that we make of those two parameters affects the resulting move up in the resonant frequency. So in other words, uh, the first thing I did was uh, I might have taken a quarter of an inch off of that gap of the tuning stub, and then I might have taken an inch off of the overall length of the antenna. And then I compared what the resonant point of the antenna was to the initial starting point. And if it only moved up a couple of megahertz, I knew that I was pretty safe taking maybe a little bit bigger piece off of each. So I'd take a quarter inch off of the stub, um, the match, the tuning match, uh, yep. and then maybe another inch off of the overall length. And I worked my way down using that procedure until I got to a resonant point close to 140 megahertz. And at that point, I began to be a little more judicious since I had made the mistake the first time with those cuts and made them much smaller than I had before. So you have to really be careful with these cuts. And as I pointed out to you, Becky, in the construction instructions, that final move towards that resonant point was really impacted more by increasing that notch gap than the overall length measurement. So I fine-tuned it probably more with that gap in the uh, in the tuning stub. Mm. So the would it be accurate to say that the uh, overall length cuts are more of a, a a broad way to tune it, and then the notch snips are more fine tuning. Yeah, initially taking a broader or a larger uh, cut off of the overall length uh, was going to be a lot bigger and have. A moderate impact on the on the tuning, uh, but as I said, once once you get closer, uh, the tuning the gap in the tuning stub is going to become more important, and that'll let you fine tune it. And then alternating between these two cuts really allowed me to zero in quite close to a resonant point to, for the antenna at about 146.52 megahertz, the uh, national calling frequency that we all know and love. Yes, indeed. And, and the interesting thing is the bandwidth of the antenna. In other words, back to one of your original questions, well, once I get it to this resonant point, is that the only place where it's going to be effective? No, because the bandwidth, in other words, the uh, deviation from that resonant point that you could go either lower or higher in frequency is going to be, um, it's not going to be that much. So if you went down, let's say, 500 kilohertz, uh, you would probably find you still have an acceptable match. If you go up 500 kilohertz, you probably will still have an acceptable match. But just remember that the optimal system is going to be at that resonant frequency. So, in, in, in effect, this covers basically the upper portion of the two-meter band where our repeater input and output frequencies are located. So it's, uh, it's going to be good for whatever repeater you might have in your local area. Yeah. 
That's great. And it's nice and portable. So if, if somebody needs uh, something that they can get out on while they're doing a, a public service activity, you know, this is something they can just toss into a bag. Yeah. All, all in all, John's design works well. And because the lamp cord is uh, much more flexible than even the twin lead in the ladder line, it's much easier to roll up, as you said, carry it and deploy it at your portable location. Uh, my YL Toby KL0SS has a J-pole antenna that's made out of twin lead. Actually, it's ladder line, I guess. And it uh, just hangs next to her HT there where she has her desk because we found that she, with all of the vegetation around during the summer uh, time, she couldn't actually get into the repeater, our local repeater, reliably. And it's only just a few miles away. So I built one of the J-poles for her, and it's uh, just hanging up from the ceiling, and she's able to get into the repeater uh, all the time with no problem at all. Oh, great. Great. Well, thank you so much, Dino. This this goes a long way to uh, certainly helping me understand how this antenna works the way it does and why, and uh, I hope it's making a difference for the folks who read on the air and listen to this podcast as well. Um, so this, uh, as I said, this is the build article for the September, October, 2022 issue of on the air, make a two meter J pole antenna from a lamp cord, just an ordinary lamp cord. And, uh, folks who want to get a little deeper into the workings of the antenna can check out the July, 2022 issue of QST which um, has the original article from John H. Unrath, K6JHU, um, where uh, John, who is the uh, designer of this antenna, gets into um, even more than what Dino has delved into here regarding the, the inner workings of this antenna. But uh, thanks again, Dino, and uh, we'll hope to see you again soon in the, the pages of On the Air. It's always a treat talking to you, Becky. Nice talking to you too, Dino. 7-3. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, which took a deeper dive into material from On the Air magazine. The On the Air podcast will be back with a new episode next month. In the meantime, feel free to send comments about On the Air to ota at arrl.org and learn more about ARL membership at arrl.org. Until next time, I'm your host, Becky Schoenfeld, W1BXY 73.